And so um, this is our fourth day We'll practice. We've had a lot of weather systems, a lot of rain, a lot of sun, a lot of clouds. Lots happening. And getting to um, know ourselves in our hearts. And for so many, you know, now I've at least seen and talked with everyone here through the large group meetings and a number of you individually. And as often with many retreats, the hearts begin to soften, we begin to get so much more sensitive to the workings of our own mind and body and heart and um, things sometimes open, which is very beautiful. And it reminds me of a poem from Hafiz that speaks about a rose and how did it ever open and show all of its beauty to the world. You know, a rosebud, it's tight. And how did it open to show all its beauty to the world? It felt the encouragement of the light against its being. So that's what awareness is, the encouragement of the light against our being. Without that light, Hafiz ends saying, otherwise we'll remain too frightened. The light begins to open the bud. Sometimes we need those reminders. Galway Canal speaks about some why sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to retell it in words and in touch that it is lovely. Just as St. Francis put his hand on the sow and she began remembering. The sense of opening into the hearts with, with some kindness. And what's really, really important. Actually, I'd like to read to you a story. I'm not sure. I I haven't read this yet without crying, so we'll see what happens. This is uh, from a, a New York City taxi cab driver. <clears throat> he wrote, I arrived at the address and I honked my horn And after waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away. But instead, I I put the car in park, and I walked to the door, and I knocked. And he heard just a minute. And the voice sounded like a very old woman. He could also hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened and there was a small woman, probably over 90 years old, that stood before him. And she was wearing a print dress and a nice hat 
It's like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small suitcase. And the apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls. No little knickknacks or things on the counters. And she says to him, will you please carry my bag out to the car? So I took the suitcase to the cab. Then I returned to assist the woman and she took my arm and we walked slowly to the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing I told her. I try to treat all my passengers this way, the way that I'd want to treat my mother. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. And when we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through the downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered. Oh, I don't mind. I'm not in a hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. A hospice is a place, you know what all a hospice is? Yeah. A hospice is a place where people go to die. Yeah. What is it in, in Finn? A hospice? Yeah. So I looked in the rearview mirror and she said, I don't have any more family. The doctors say I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and I shut off my meter. You know what the meter is? That's keeping the tab of the money. He shut it off. Ugh. What route would you like me to take? I asked. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. And she had me pull up in front of a furniture store that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slowly park in front of a particular building or a corner and we'd sit there staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of the sun came up on the horizon she said I'm tired let's go now and we drove in silence to the hospice and two orderlies came out of the cab and they brought her in with a wheelchair. She asked me, how much do I owe you? Reaching for her purse. I said, nothing. But you have to make a living, she answered. There are other passages. And almost without thinking, I bent and I gave her a hug. And she held on to me tightly. 
Ooh, you just gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand, and then we walked into the, the dim morning light, and behind me a door was shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that day. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry taxi driver, the one who was impatient with her? What if I had refused to take her, or honked once and then drove away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think our lives resolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. It's really important. You know, you can talk all about the Buddhist texts and these texts and that text, and you know, nothing like love and being kind. Kindness is what brings us our life and our joys. Perhaps this practice is burning away the hardness, the anger, the despair, until all that's left is just kindness. In the attitude that we hold and work with ourselves and practice kindness, teacher Tampulucero, he spoke about meditation that, so even this is like such a gesture of kindness in the instructions of how we hold our practice, our position. He says, if you keep your hands and feet in one position for a long time, you'll experience all kinds of feelings in every moment. In your mind, you'll not achieve one-pointedness and your meditation will not go anywhere. Whenever you have to move, move with no painful feelings in your mind, the mind will get one-pointed, the meditation will progress, the results will be great. Speaking about this training in kindness. And so if we bring that same type of attitude of hitting our heads against the wall while we're meditating, our heads are going to hurt more. I don't know how to say over and over again that the meditation is about you. And often we try way too hard 
and feel deficient and it causes us to be in more and more pain. So the invitation is to soften What are you waiting for? We're in this together, though sometimes we forget. So here's another story from Naomi Shiabnai. This is called Gate. 4A. I was wandering around the airport terminal after learning that my flight had been detained for four hours. And I heard an announcement. Is there anyone in the vis near gate 4A that understands Arabic? Please come to the gate immediately. Well, I was actually on my way to gate 4A and I speak some Arabic. And I went there and there was an older woman in full traditional Palestinian dress. She looked just like my grandma and she was crumpled on the floor and she was just wailing and crying. The flight attendant was saying, help, help. What's your problem? We told her the flight was going to be late. I went to that woman. And I spoke to her in Arabic and I put my arm around her. The minute she heard my words, even though maybe they were not so beautifully pronounced, she stopped crying. She had thought the flight had been canceled. She needed to go to Texas for some major medical help the next day. And I told her, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. So we called her son and we spoke with him. And I told her I'd stay with, I told him I'd stay with his mother till she got on the plane. Then, after kanking up, we decided, let's, I, I called my dad. And then she spoke with him in Arabic for a while and found that they had 10 friends. She was laughing a lot then, telling me about her life, patting my knee. She had pulled a sack of homemade cookies, little powdered sugar, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and started offering them to all the women around the gate. And to my amazement, not one single woman declined it. They took it. It was like a sacrament. A traveler from Argentina, a mom from California, a lovely woman from Texas. We were all covered with the same powdered sugars around our mouths and we were all smiling. There was no better cookie. Then the airline gave out free beverages. 
and two little girls ran from our flight around serving all the apple juice and they were covered with powder sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, now we were holding hands. She had a potted plant with her. This is from the old country. When traveling, you always carry a plant. You always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around the gate of late, people weary and tired, and I thought of this world that I live in, that it's a shared world. They all took the cookies, we all hugged each other, that this can still happen. Not everything is lost. This is what I want to live in, is a shared world. This is what I want to live in, is in a shared world. I'll just sit for a little bit. And just, um, yeah, what is it like to live in a shared world with each other? So filling into your own precious budded heart and feel the light of your own awareness and cultivating its beauty so it can open to the world. all these different types of esoteric and complex teachings of this and that 
And when boiled down, perhaps it just comes down to love. How can I live with an open heart to become more free of these stories that have enslaved us? To dare to be in the mystery, the not knowing, an opening into this heart with great compassion and love that can never be taken away. As I mentioned, I lived in the monastery, a monastery for eight and a half years, and there was a lot of very amazing teachings, but what fueled the teachings was the heart of kindness, that there was a legacy of kindness and love that swept through those forests that have come from the teachers before, passed on to student to teacher, teacher to student, this legacy of love, the heart. My teacher, Leindet Sierra, he was a, a monk for 78 years. He died at the age of 98. And you start counting monk years when you're 20. Before that, he was a novice monk for probably a, another 10 years. So he'd been in the robe for like probably over 80 plus years. And um, there was a period in his life that he did this ascetic practice of a vow to not lie down. He would stay resting in his chair. He did this for many years. <laughs> Hard to believe in our Western culture. My other teacher, Tampalu Sero, he didn't lie down for over 50 years. It's hard to believe. What? Sounds pretty macho. It's not meant to be macho. It's meant to develop contentment and fewness of wishes and the sleeping practice benefits is that you awake more so you can meditate for longer periods of time. As a monk, it's probably a good thing. But my teacher, Lainez Cero, he had kind of a sparkle in his eye. And just to kind of describe his personality, you know, there's some people or teachers around, like, you really kind of notice them. They have charisma, you know the word charisma? They kind of draw attention. And I've had some, you know, one of my teachers, Tampu Lucero, was very charismatic in some ways, yet incredibly humble. And Lain Lucero was kind of the opposite of charisma. <laughs> if you were in a room with him, and there was also like a chair and a table and a lamp, 
you might notice the chair, the table, and the lamp first <laughs> before you noticed Sierra. He just wasn't that noticeable. He just did not draw any attention to himself. And I had been living with him in the monastery for some months, and all of a sudden I turned one day and was like, who's, who's this guy? <laughs> I mean, he's been around, kind of, but like, who is he? He doesn't say very much. He doesn't do very much. He doesn't draw any attention to himself, and he seems to actually pretty, be pretty content just sitting there in the corner all the time. I never met somebody like this that was so utterly contented within himself. There's no sense of drawing any attention of any type of being special or not special. He's quiet in his ways. He had a little twinkle. And um, there was one night there was some visiting monks that were happening and I gave up my room and so he told me, you can, you can come and stay with me that night. And I was excited. It was like the night before Christmas. <laughs> I was lying on a mat on the floor and he was sitting in his chair. And I couldn't believe that he'd asked me that I could just stay there. And I was also really curious, what does he do all night sitting in that chair? <laughs> What does he do? So I turned over the other side and I eventually fell asleep. I was so excited. But I eventually fell asleep. And I got up, I don't know, an hour or two later and I was like, oh, I'm in Seattle's room. And I turn over and I look to see what he's doing. I was thick, maybe he'll be slumped over. And, <laughs> and he just, he's just looking at me and he kind of winks an eye at me. Because <laughs> that's strange. So then I kind of turned and I kind of like then was facing his side. And eventually I fell back to sleep for a while and then I woke up at some point and then I was curious, what is he doing now? So then I just opened my eyes just a little teeny bit and he was looking at me smiling. Oh God. This went on all night long. <laughs> Every time I opened my eyes, he was kind of looking at me smiling. <laughs> Who was this guy? I don't have any idea. Who was he? There's times, of course, um, I would give him a lot of foot massages. He didn't speak much. And many a times, many a nights, many a nights through the years, just being with him, not saying very much, massaging him, his feet. And I'd just be listening to him breathe in and breathe out. And I was so often transported, just listening to his breath, it sounded like, you know, like when you go into the deep forest and, and like the winds going through the forest. 
and it was like just transport me into like some of the deepest forests I've ever been to. You know, I lived with him for eight and a half years, so I got a chance to really check him out, and he was pretty content. <laughs> and um, it's a blessing to have that type of an experience, to be around a person that was such an embodiment of what I used to call minding your own dharma. <laughs> he was just um, contented with who he was and didn't need to have any attention. I was very fortunate that um, when he was in his early 90s, uh, my wife very much surprised me. Um, unbeknownst to me, she, had, she knew that he was getting very old and she wanted to support me to um, go see him one more time. And secretly behind my back, she wrote letters to all of our friends in our community um, if, saying that if anybody wanted to help support me to go see my teacher. And this one night, She said, I want you to close your eyes. <laughs> and then she handed me this big basket filled with all these cards from so many friends. All these love letters saying, we want to support you to go to Burma. And there was more than enough money donated because we didn't have very much money in those days to be able to go, which was quite an incredible gift. There was actually so much money left over that I actually offered it to Seattle and they actually built a, a small little cabin, which was really nice. And the people were very happy, like to, they, you know, to yeah, give to the village, give to the monastery, whatever you want. And it turned out on this trip that this was the very last time that I saw him. And, um, he was in his early 90s, as I said. And on the very last night, as I was, you know, this was my last night with him. I was going to be heading back to California the next day. And, and I realized um, there's one very, very deep question that I still had in my heart of a question that I wanted to ask him. It was my last question. And as it turned out to be the very last question, because when I left, I never saw him again. He died a couple of years later. But my question to him was after, you know, him being, a, since he's been a monk his whole life, I wanted to know what he was going to do, and being that he was in his 90s, what was he going to do when death would knock on his door? What was he going to do? So I asked the Seattle, what, what are you going to do? I mean, I realize death can happen at any time, but you're in your 90s, and, you know, and what, you know, you've been practicing meditation for years. What are you going to do? And so he looked at me for a really, really long time, 
And then he smiled at me, and then he said something that caught me off guard. He said, Bob, are, are you afraid to die? And, and he saw, like, wait a minute, I, I didn't ask you that question. I just asked you what you're going to do. And he's like saying, are you afraid to die? That, that wasn't part of the deal. So you could tell I was kind of upset. Or he caught me off guard and, and I said, well, so yeah, I, I am. You know, I'm in my 40s at the time and, you know, I, I, I want it to be much later. And he looks at me and goes, ooh, you, you need to meditate more. This is the same one that told me to go back with the, church, the chick, the, the roosters. So, so, you, so you know this guy. You need to meditate more. And I said to the Seto, yes, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and then it got quiet for a while, and so I still had that question, <laughs> and he didn't answer it. And so then I, I asked him again, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? And so then again, he kind of looked at me for a long, long time, and I saw his cheeks move up and down. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and then he says something to me that I'll, I'll never forget. And I'll pass it on to you. And I actually told this to my 99-year-old Jewish grandmother before she died at the age of 103. And she thought this was a really good idea, too. So what Seattle said was, as I die, if I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I smell something, I'll be mindful of smelling. If I taste something, I'll be mindful of tasting. If I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I feel sensations within the body, I'll be mindful of sensations in the body. If there's any thoughts and emotions that are rising in awareness, I'll be mindful of my thoughts and emotions. This is how I am going to die. This is how I want you to die, Bob. Thank you, Seattle. I thought that was fabulous. I, th I never received such an incredibly direct die with your heart open, your mindfulness with awareness. I don't want to die with my eyes closed. I don't want to die being sedated. I don't want to die being asleep. If life has been incredibly wonderful, why not be there when you die and actually really see it and meet it? Also, I'm fine to let it wait a while. <laughs> but I thought that was such an incredibly wise and simple answer. That this is the practice that he's been doing for a lifetime, practice I've been doing for so many years, is to stay present with what's here. Bring awareness to what's here. Clinging to nothing, resisting nothing. So it's an incredible gift. And even my grandma, who never meditated, she thought, I like that idea, Bobby. <laughs> So, how do we work with making this practice really our lives? It's not some type of an intellectual suit, like that professor of swimology. If you don't know how to swim, you're in deep trouble. So, making this practice our lives. You know, people say, you know, well, oh my gosh, the retreat's going to end. But the truth be told, it doesn't end. Because the truth be told, your life is the retreat. And whatever comes up in your life 
is the practice. And as you begin to really get this and sink this in, the separation between retreat, home life, is it, it, that separation begins to dissolve because we know that our life is our practice. So we're heading out tomorrow into our lives, but wherever you go, there you are. You're still here. And I think if we begin to understand that our life is the practice, then wherever you go and wherever you are, we have this practice to work with ourselves. And so I really want to encourage this integration of a deep inhalation within this retreat and an exhalation going back into our lives. To bring this practice into our lives. This is where it really counts and matters. It's very wonderful that in these teachings, and MBSR really embodies, embodies them, because it's really pointing to how do we live our lives in a way that brings more happiness, more peace, more freedom. The third and the fourth noble truths, or the great realizations of the Buddha, speak to that, that there's a path to the lessening, to the ending of suffering. Sometimes known as the noble eightfold path, which to me, if there was anything that, that I would take with me on a desert island, would be the noble eightfold path. It really points to how we live our lives. And it begins with great wisdom, the wisdom to understand that harming creates more harm. That hatred never ceases by hatred and only love ceases hatred. And taking responsibility within our hearts that our minds are the creators of our own heavens and our own hells through our own thoughts and the importance of cultivating and developing our mental, our mental development, our development of our hearts to live a life causing less harm. When we're living a life with integrity, we're in harmony with ourselves, with each other, and the world. And when we're living out of integrity, it's causing pain and suffering to ourselves and to others. So the teachings within these Eightfold Paths is the teachings of how do I learn to live with greater integrity in our lives. And even in MBSR classes, though, we don't have big speeches about the Noble Eightfold Path and the importance of living virtuously. People live because you become mindful. You begin to recognize when you're not living in harmony, when you're living out of integrity. And of course, if you recognize you're living out of integrity, that begins to align you to live with integrity. And people know what integrity means. It means doing no harm or causing the least harm possible because maybe it's impossible to do no harm, but maybe possible for us to develop as a practice in our lives to cause the least harm possible. It's called ahimsa, the practices of, of non-harming. It's taken on as a practice. Practice with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So this is what we can bring into our lives. 
How do I live with integrity, with virtue, with transparency, being honest and real? This is the heart of the Naval Eightfold Path. Sometimes we speak about this path that it's divided in three ways. The first and the foundational way of developing any type of wisdom is the foundation of virtue, of living with integrity. With this living with integrity, it opens up to the second great area of steadiness, calmness, concentration of the mind and the heart. The reason that we can become concentrated, steady, is because we're living a life of integrity. If we're living a life that's causing harm, very difficult to steady the mind and the body, filled with remorse, filled with guilt, filled with just wanting to cause pain. So living that life of integrity helps to steady the mind and the body. This is why the beginning of the retreat, we were so much emphasizing the qualities of safety, which is part of our development. Those trainings of non-harming, taking life, not stealing, committing sexual harm, or words of speech that cause pain, being free of intoxicants that, that cloud the mind and the heart. So these are ways of living our lives when we begin to live with integrity the mind and heart feel safe and can become settled. In the sense of becoming settled, we can begin to develop deeper insights. So they come together. The importance of these practices that we want to bring, I want to encourage you to bring them into your life. So, taking home with us our commitment to trying to live the best we can with integrity, without harming, supporting our ways in practice, meditating when we can, to support us to grow with deeper understanding. Purify the mind and the heart. These are the essential teachings within the Dharma. And point the way to great liberation. Not an easy path, but if we aspire to, to experience more freedom, then aligning with integrity, aligning in whatever path it is, that lessens our greed, our hatred, and our ignorance, that increases and grows, instead of our greed, our capacity to be generous and to be contented. Instead of 
falling into hatred and aversion, cultivating the qualities of loving kindness. Instead of falling into the ways of unawareness is to see more clearly where it is we get stuck, where it is we're pushing away from or grasping onto, to see more clearly where we get caught to experience greater freedom and peace. This is why we're practicing mindfulness to become more free, less enslaved by our stories, our pain, our fears. As I said last night, these stories that we live with that we call I, me, and my, the Bob show and all these different, all of us, all of our different personalities, these, this is what we need to work with to become free. It cannot be bypassed. It's been such a, a really, um, such a deep honor to be here with you. I feel very lucky as if I just got in a parachute and landed here in the heart of the Finland heart, not as a tourist but it's just drop, dropping into the opportunity to be real with each other that brings so much life. So I just want to just thank you so much for our time. I'll say more tomorrow, but I'm just, you know, I had a, in some ways different things I was going to say tonight, but I, I just felt so swept with my heart and I haven't even really looked at any of the notes I've done and I don't really even care. I wanted to just speak from my heart to you and just to be real. And it's not like planned and, oh, I'm going to say this, oh, I'm going to say that. <clears throat> and it's been a really great honor to, to be with you all in this amazing land. Long times of sunlight, long times of darkness. And no matter where I go, the human heart way down where the spirit meets the soul is pretty similar. And this is indeed a retreat that uh, will be unforgettable in more ways than one. You signed up for the advanced retreat with you to some others like, oh, wow. Well, actually, I don't want to say that because every retreat is different. And as I mentioned, you know, you can go to the five-class meditation hotel of Spirit Rock and it'll still be really fucking hard. It'll still be intense. And... Um, because it's just no perfect place. And then again, everywhere is perfect. So to take on what we've done here this week as part of our practice has been really incredible and I really commend you all, all of us. So I'll just end with a reading from another Thai forest master. His name is Acham Buddhadasa. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open and free heart that does not cling to anything. 
This is the peace of nirvana. It's always here. It's available whenever we let go. It's available whenever we let go. Nachan Shah says, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. If you let go of everything, you'll have all freedom. But not so easy to let go. But what else? This is our life. So let us just sit for a little bit. <laughs>